All right. Uh, yes. So for the uh, question and answer chapel, uh, really, uh, you can feel free to ask questions. And usually they're asked in one of three areas, uh, doctrine slash theology um, or Bible interpretation, or I guess four areas, uh, just the Christian life struggles that we all have, etc., or Christian ministry, just the practical things about uh, doing ministry. So those are typically the areas where uh, students ask questions. Really, the only area that is um, off limits, if you will, is that whenever I do this, I just encourage the students not to try to use this chapel to sort of pit uh, professors against professors. Uh, because that sometimes happens. And we do have the differences. I mean, you know, uh, on the faculty, there are some that hold to a limited atonement, some that hold to an unlimited atonement, and some that hold to, uh, you know, other views. So, uh, you, you know, you, you, views on Romans 7. Was Paul a Christian when he wrote those words? Was he, is he describing his life before Christ? I mean, I don't mind if you want to ask, like, you know, what is your t take or interpretation on something? Um, just as long as it's not sort of in an attempt to use it to, to sort of pit and say, well, see, you're, you know, this professor, I think he's wrong. Did you hear what was said in chapel? That kind of thing. So just, just stay away from that sort of uh, uh, pettiness. And other than that, it's uh, wide open. So um, with that in mind, that background, who's going to be first? All right, if it's all right, I'm yeah. Gonna, I'm going to, since we're recording this and people do listen. Yes. It's around so that... Uh, so that we get the question. Oh, over. great. Okay. Right. Sounds good. All right. All we'll right. Come up to Josh. Could you do your best to sum up the gospel message in one to three sentences? Sure. I think that would be. Okay. Sure. So the gospel message in one to three sentences. So, sentence number one we are sinners and deserve condemnation. Sentence number two, God has provided a remedy for our sin problem by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place. Sentence number three, we are responsible to repent of our sins and embrace the provision that God has granted to us for salvation. That's how I would say it in three sentences. So, that's the easy one. I asked him to throw me a softball. To start the thing, so yes. Can a can a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, lose their salvation? And can you back up your answer with Scripture, please? Sure. So, can a uh, uh, Christian lose his salvation? And I would believe the answer to that is no. And the reason why I would believe that, in you know, you say back up with Scripture. So let me just mention a few of the passages, and I think there are many, many passages, um, but start in the Gospels, where in chapter 10 of John, verses 27 through 30, uh, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. And uh, the Greek construction there is, those of you who've had some Greek, is a double negative, an ume, which is the strongest way to say no. They shall, so you, you really could translate, they shall never no way, not, not a chance whatsoever, perish. Can't happen. That would be a valid way to translate that. And the very fact that Jesus says there in John 10 that he gives his sheep eternal life, even that statement is sufficient because he doesn't give us temporary life. 
So if, if you can lose your salvation, you were never given eternal life. You were given temporary life. It was only as long as you sort of stayed on track. So that statement uh, in, in John 10, uh, Romans chapter 8 is another one uh, where Paul just labors to say in verses 31 through 39, uh, what can separate us from the love of God? And again, he knows that people are going to take exception. So he says, you know, not, what can separate us? Neither height, nor death, nor principalities, nor powers, nor any creation. He just goes in this long list to say nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And in the context, what he's talking about, not is God going to stop loving us, that's a given, but would God ever stop loving us in the sense of removing our salvation? And he says, absolutely not. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other, because people want to say, yeah, but you can lose your own salvation. So Paul's in Paul throws in, nor any created thing. Are you a created thing? Yes. Am I a created thing? Yes. We can't even cause ourselves to lose our salvation. And then just keep marching through the New Testament. You have like Philippians 1.6. Paul says, being confident this is the very thing that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Um, so th that was just, again, there are literally, and I'm serious about this, dozens of passages uh, that we could go to, but just picking one out of the Gospels, uh, then one out of Romans, which is probably the most comprehensive book on salvation, and then one out of one of Paul's other statements out of Philippians 1.6. That, that, and then you can add to that uh, statements in Ephesians, two statements in Ephesians uh, about the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. Ephesians 4.30 uh, says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed, until the day of redemption. So a very significant statement because it's in the statement of a Christian sinning. So do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So what can we do as Christians? Well, we certainly can sin and we certainly can grieve the Holy Spirit. But that was a perfect chance if Paul wanted to warn us about losing our salvation to say, uh, do not, instead of grieve the Holy Spirit of God, do not send the Holy Spirit of God away. But he says the opposite. Do not grieve him because he has sealed you until the day of redemption. Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 1, right around verse 22. Uh, he talks about being sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. So, yeah, from all different angles, uh, I'm, I'm convinced that a, a genuine believer cannot lose his salvation. Now, maybe I should add this. What does get confusing sometimes is that we see people that we assume are genuine believers, and then in time, they tragically demonstrate that they weren't. The classic example, of course, is Judas Iscariot. All of his friends, now you need to understand that the other disciples were his friends. So all of his friends thought he was a believer. Even at the very end, even at the very end when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, not a one of them said, oh, it's got to be Judas. They didn't, they, didn't, they didn't suspect Judas any more than they suspected themselves. Not only that, when Jesus turned to him and it was Passover and Judas is right there next to Jesus, John is reclining on Jesus' chest, Judas is on the other side, and he dismisses Judas to go give something, or to go carry out the betrayal, the Bible tells us that they thought, the disciples thought, Jesus dismissed Judas because he was the treasurer to go give something to the poor on this important Jewish holiday is Passover. So they never suspected him to the very end. What a shock to be in the Garden of Gethsemane and see Judas leading the group to come to arrest Jesus. So that, that always complicates the issue because 
you know, we, we see people who seem to belong to the Lord and then they, they turn away from the Lord. Now be careful, I'm not implying a genuine believer can't backslide or turn away from the Lord because he can. But we, I'm talking about people who don't really belong to the Lord, but they make a, uh, uh, they claim to and then they turn away, never to come back, no interest and basically prove they aren't believers, it confuses people. It's like, well, he was a believer, now he's clearly not a believer, so he was a believer who's now lost his salvation. And I think there's another, there are two other explanations for that. One is, he never was a believer and is just proving that, or the other possibility is that he is a believer who is really wandering from the Lord, and that's why you have passages like in Hebrews 1 Corinthians 11 that says the Lord, those whom the Lord loves, he chastens. So he will chasten his children. Now, if we never wandered or we never backslide, stray, whatever term, there would be no need for chastening. So, so the, just be careful, I guess is my point. Don't, we can't, you know, you can't look at someone and say, oh, I know they're a Christian or I know they're not a Christian or I know you, we can't make those assessments. But we can, we can ascertain theological realities from Scripture because that's not as complicated as looking at someone's life and saying, oh, is he a believer, is he not? I thought he was, he isn't. But Scripture says the true child of God is secure. Good. Up here, Danny, right here in yeah. Esther's. Yeah. <laughs> um, so once me and some friends were talking with a Catholic friend at Chunch, and he brought up a verse, and I think... First John, but I'm, I don't remember. Um, but it's the verse that says that some leads to some sin leads to death, and yes. some does not. Yes. Um, and so we were just kind of like wrestling with what that seems to contradict other scripture that talks about how all sin leads to spiritual death, that sure. sort of thing. So could you explain yeah, that? No, yeah, that is a uh, it's it's in First John. You're right, and and uh, John talks about this. Uh, James talks about it also. I think I think Paul addresses it also. And I think what is being referred to there is you are correct, your statement, well, all sin leads to spiritual death in one way or another. If we're a believer and we're involved in sin, it leads to death in the sense that it, it separates the relationship we have with the Lord. Death basically means separation. Physical death is separation of the inner person from the body. Spiritual death is separation of some kind, either eternally from the Lord or just temporally when you're in sin, etc. Uh, <clears throat> so... That is certainly true. All sin leads to death of some kind. But I think what Jay, uh, uh, I'm sorry, John is referring to there is specifically what seemed to be very common in the first century, namely that when Christians died, they were chastened by death. I'm sorry, I said die. When Christians sinned, they were chastened by death. The first example we have is, is Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. Uh, when you read the story, if you read Acts and just you're reading the story, really there's no reason, at least for me, to, to assume that they were non-Christians. They were part of the church. They saw Barnabas sell a piece of land and give the proceeds to the leaders of the church to be used for ministry. Certainly Barnabas would have gotten commendation from people. Wow, that's so neat you did that, etc. They decided to do the same thing. It's like, okay, we'll do the same thing. And then something happened in their hearts or either they got more money for the land than they thought they were going to get, or they decided, well, we don't want to quite give all of it, but we want to pretend we're going to give all of it. Well, the Lord killed them. And then you have the same type of thing in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul says, you know, let a man examine himself before you partake of communion. Uh, and you, as Corinthians, are not doing that. You're partaking in an unworthy manner. 
For this reason, some are sick among you and some sleep. Some even are dead. Well, listen, I can't tell you why it doesn't happen as often as it seemed to happen today. I mean, why it doesn't happen as often today as it did in the New Testament, but it certainly doesn't seem to happen as often. I mean, I know this as a pastor. When we have communion, almost every time I just think, you really, you're going to take it? You might fall over dead. You should fall over dead. You know, now someone will say, well, why don't you go to him? Well, maybe we're in the process as leaders of going to that person, trying to get him to repent. And so this is ongoing and he hasn't repented. And it's like, you're involved in this and you're going to partake of communion. It's like, I almost wince, like, really? But it just doesn't seem to happen like it did in the first century. So, so what John, I think, is addressing is, you know what? There is sin leading to death. That is, we don't know. Now, what it has led to, sadly, in the Catholic system, it's significant you're talking to this person who's Catholic, is it has, has resulted in an unbiblical distinction between mortal and venial sins. Uh, and there are these categories, etc. But I do think that John was talking about that. Listen, if you see your brother's sin, sin that doesn't lead to death, in other words, God doesn't take his life, pray for him. Pray for him to repent. And uh, if he is a sin leading to death, don't pray for him. There's no, once he's dead, there's no... You don't pray for people that are dead. And there's not, no reason to pray for them. That's done deal. So I think he was just addressing a, an issue that was fairly common in his day. And as I said, James says, seems to say the same thing right at the end of his letter. If any of you turns a brother from the error of his way, he saved a soul from death. We, we easily assume that means like eternal death, but it very likely could mean you maybe saved his life if this brother is in sin. So I think that's, that's what's going on there. All right. I got Caleb back here and then up to Reed. Okay. This is a two-part question. One, um, uh, oils in the New Testament are sometimes compared to uh, the Holy Spirit, or mm -hmm. I've heard people saying that. Right. And then also, or could you expound on that? Sure. And then also, why do believers today not anoint others with oils today sure. like sure. they did in the New Testament? Sure. Um, yes. Okay. So two part question. First of all, you are correct that the, the symbol of oil, especially in the Old Testament, maybe in the New, but especially in the Old Testament was, I mean, it was literally used, physically used to anoint prophets, anoint kings. Um, but there was also a symbolism of it related to the Holy Spirit, uh, because, you know, pouring, frankly, pouring oil on somebody's head doesn't do anything except make their hair greasy. Uh, except that the symbolism of now you're the anointed king and our desire is that the Spirit of God would anoint you for your office. So you can see how there would be a connection there because they would use oil to anoint, but they wanted it also to indicate their desire for a prophet to be anointed with power from the Holy Spirit or a king to be anointed with power from the Holy Spirit. So there is that, you see that symbolism sometimes. Interestingly, when you come into the New Testament, the first example, I th I'm almost positive on this. Don't quote me, but you, you can check it out for yourself. But if you just start reading, start in the New Testament, and you, you come into the New Testament, and you start reading the Gospels, I think the first occurrence of, of oiling someone is in relation to the story that Jesus told of the Good Samaritan. And in that case, interestingly, it was not symbolic. It was actually medicinal. You remember the guy got beat up, and so then the Good Samaritan brought wine and oil to soothe his wounds. The, the wine, because of the alcohol in it, would be medicinal. It would prevent infection. 
the oil would, would be just like when you put salve on a wound today or, or some type of uh, uh, ointment like that. So it was actually that that was used physically for physical purposes or medicinal purposes. Now, the reason why I mention that, and this is to answer your second question, um, why some Christians or a lot of Christians or churches don't do anointing with oil is because the one passage that is used by Christians who do anoint with oil is in James and in James, there is major question in that passage about whether that is spiritual anointing or if it is, like with the Good Samaritan, actual physical medicinal anointing. There are major questions. And in fact, as I've studied it and the words that James uses there, the Greek words he uses, etc., I'm of the persuasion that it was not ceremonial because there is a Greek word for ceremonial anointing of oil. It's not the word that James uses. He uses a word that literally means just to rub with oil. Or the participle there, it sounds kind of funny, but it just says, pray over him having oiled him. That's just, just having oiled him, having rubbed some oil on him. So, so that is why a number of Christian groups don't do that today is because they're not convinced. Certainly we see that in the Old Testament with prophets and priests and kings, etc. Uh, but because in the New Testament, when you see in Acts, they would sometimes fast and pray over their leaders before they installed them into office. Um, but you don't have that type of instruction. In other words, to anoint them with oil before they become an elder or before they become a teacher in the church or whatever. Pray for them. Uh, lay hands on them uh, to, sh to show your backing, etc. But because of the lack of New Testament instruction on that and the one passage that could be instructing that, depending on how it's taken, James, because it's got two very viable interpretations and, and maybe stronger evidence for not ceremonial, that's why there isn't that practice today in most churches. I have two questions about Rome, or, uh, Revelation 14. Sure. So um, first, the 144,000, I believe it's clear that it's referring to Jews. Sure. But right. I'm wondering if you could share um, other cross-references that make that, affirm that point clearer. Sure. And then also, um, right after that, Revelation 14, 6, and I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, uh -huh. what is meant by mid-heaven, because that sure. may be the Mormon's favorite verse otherwise. Sure. Right, so. right, right, right. right. Uh, so you're going after both the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons with your two questions. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> um, the reason I say that is because if you are familiar with their history, the Jehovah's Witnesses claim that they were the 144,000 until their numbers exceeded 144,000, and then they had to recant that, that position. So, um, first question, read The, the, the 144,000 on Mount Zion, uh, you say, I assume it's a reference to Jews. Can, is there any substantiation of that? And I would say there is, absolutely. And it's back in chapter 7, where this group first appears. And the reason they appear in 14 is because the writer, John, wants us to show that what happened back in chapter 7 was 
was effectual and it worked and it preserved all 144,000 through this time of great turmoil and trouble. And they, excuse me, they all made it through. And so they are standing at the end with the Lamb on Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem. So back in chapter 7 is when they are selected and sealed. And um, John says uh, in verse 4 that I heard the number of those who were sealed, uh, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Now this is always, I don't mean, please don't misunderstand us. I'm not poking fun at anyone when I say this, when I go on here. I, I'm, it is funny to me. And I wonder if there isn't some humor from the Lord in this or if it's just uh, his, um, I don't know what word to use, just knowing our tendency. But he could have stopped there. He could have said 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. That should be sufficient to say these are Jewish people. But knowing our tendency to say, well, I know it says of the children of Israel, but that doesn't, Israel doesn't mean Israel. So look, look at what he does. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher. Now, he could have even stopped there and said, and of the rest of the tribes. No. Of the tribe of Asher, 12, you know, it's, it's like the Holy Spirit is being as specific as he can be. These are Jews, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. I used this illustration recently when, when teaching on this. I said, listen, if I said to you, that 5,000 people from each of the five biggest cities in Montana were selected to do something. So 5,000 from Billings, 5,000 from Bozeman, 5,000 from Great Falls, and I listed that. What would you assume from that? You would say 5,000 from each of the five largest cities in, in Montana, 25,000 people. But for whatever reason, Christians read this passage and they say, this isn't Jews, this isn't Israel. I don't, I don't know how God could be any clearer to say, I'm talking about 144,000 Jewish people sealed, and they're sealed to make sure they make it through this horrendous time that is described, chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, the seven-year tribulation period, the Daniel 70th week. And the purpose of chapter 14 then, coming back to your question, is to show they made it through. All 144,000 that were sealed made it all the way through all of this time and they're standing on the throne or they're standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb. Why on Mount Zion? Because that's where the Lamb is going to reign from during His kingdom. So they are there. So in answer to your question, do you believe these are Jewish people? Absolutely. Uh, what scriptural evidence? Chapter 7. And not only is that scriptural evidence, it is... I, is the most over-the-top way that God could say these are 144,000 Jewish people. Uh, your second question on chapter 14, verse 6, I saw another angel flying in the mid, in the mid heaven. Uh, what is that? Well, the, in the Jewish, the Jewish way of thinking, you remember when Paul said in 2 Corinthians, I knew a man in Christ who was caught up to the third heaven? Uh, in the Jewish way of thinking, here, this is how they viewed heaven. First of all, this right here is heaven. Th this right here. This isn't. This is earth. This is ground. This is, this is heaven. This is, we're breathing air. Then the second heaven is what you see when you go outside and you look up there. You see the sky, the clouds. You know, that's the, the mid heaven or the second heaven. The third heaven is the 
throne room of God, the, the dwelling place of God. So in 2 Corinthians, when Paul says, I knew a man in Christ who was caught up to the third heaven, what he's saying is he didn't go up into the clouds. He went to the very presence of God. So here, when John says, he describes this angel flying in the mid-heaven, having the everlasting gospel preaching to those who dwell on the earth, what he's saying is, is during this future time, this tribulation period, that do you remember Jesus said that before he comes back in his second coming, that everyone will hear the gospel. Well, how is everyone going to hear the gospel? Well, the way that everyone's going to hear the gospel in the future eventually, because listen, not everyone on planet Earth has heard the gospel today. I think everyone of us would acknowledge that. Not a, there are tribes, there are people out there. But before Jesus comes back, everyone will have heard the gospel. How? Well, the book of Revelation tells us how. One, there will be two special witnesses who are able to breathe fire and call down fire from heaven, etc. They will be proclaiming the gospel. The 144,000 will be 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel will be proclaiming the gospel. In addition, every Gentile that gets saved will be proclaiming the gospel. And just to make sure that no one is missed, there is going to be this angel flying around planet Earth proclaiming the gospel to everybody on planet Earth. So everyone will have heard the gospel. And that evidently is important to the Lord because it takes away this false idea that some people are going to take the mark of the beast accidentally. No one's going to take it accidentally. Everyone is going to be forced to choose sides. Here's the gospel. Here's the gospel of the kingdom. Here's the good news. You can either embrace the true Christ or you can line up with the false Christ and take his mark. And if you take his mark, you need to understand, as this very chapter says uh, in verse 9, the third angel followed them, saying with a loud if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out in full strength in the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the holy lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. They have no rest day or night who worship the beast or his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. In other words, you have only yourself to blame. Because you've heard the gospel either from the two special witnesses or from the 144,000, or from people that get saved during the tribulation period, or an angel flying in the heaven. You've heard the gospel. So you did not make your choice in ignorance. You made it with full knowledge. I'm siding with the beast. If you do that, then this is your destiny. Thank you. You bet. All right. All right, I've got one back here with Rick, and then up All to right. Jace. Returning to the subject of sin and consequences for sin. Yeah. Within the... Uh, church body and uh, church discipline. Are there any sins or categories of sins which would not warrant church discipline to the point of removing a person from the body? Mm. Are there sins that are less serious or more serious, less applicable or more applicable that would qualify whether or not a church would remove somebody from their presence? Yeah. Okay, great question, Rick. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 5 for that. And I'm going to tread carefully here because I, I don't want to, to miscommunicate or be misunderstood. But I would say this. Certainly, all sin is sin. All sin is serious in our relationship with God. But some sins are more, let me, what word do I want to use here? More damaging by virtue of their public nature in misrepresenting Christ. Maybe I haven't thought through the wording well, but what I'm trying to say is that uh, in 1 Corinthians 5, 
Paul opens this chapter by saying it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles. And Paul, and Paul is clearly using the Gentiles here, not just non-Jews, but people who don't know God. In other words, there's sin going on in your church that even pagans don't do. And specifically in this context, that a man has his father's wife. That is, that a man is living in a sexually immoral relationship with his stepmother. This was going on in the church at Corinth. And then, this is so amazing how some things never change. Verse 2, and you are puffed up and not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. In other words, this church, imagine this, this church was proud of the fact that they could extend so much grace that they would just let this, leave this guy alone. And Paul says, that is skewed. That's not anything to be proud of. That kind of extension of grace, that kind of love. And you hear this a lot today in the body of Christ. Well, we're just so loving and accepting and we just want to extend grace. Well, I agree with all of those. But not in a way that so dishonors the name of Christ. Where you have this guy who everybody in the community evidently knew he was a Christian or at least claimed to be a Christian. And yet he's living immorally with his, in a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And the church just lets it go on. They don't do anything about it. So that's what prompts Paul's teaching here. And so still coming back to my statement that, that sin that especially is a reproach to Christ because of its public nature or whatever is, is more serious in effect or consequence. It's not more serious in our relationship with God. Uh, you know, if you lie privately somehow like you lie on your income tax, well, that's very grievous to the Lord. But if nobody knows, it's not, you know, it's not a dishonoring of the name of Christ that you go around claiming to be a Christian and you live contradictory. So this was as blatant and public as it could be, which leads Paul to say what he says at the end of this chapter, uh, where he says, uh, you know, I wrote to you, verse 9 in my epistle, he's talking about his previous letter, not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world. In other words, I'm not telling you to break off all friendships with non-Christians uh, because that's the way, sadly, non-Christians are going to live. He says, uh, or with the covetous extortioners or idolaters, since then you'd need to go out of the world. Now, this is especially true in Corinth. Corinth was a vile city. So Paul's saying, listen, if you're breaking off any friendship with anyone who lives this way, you're going to have to leave Corinth. You're going to have to go out of the world. You can't even be there. But now, to clarify, he says, I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother, or that is, someone who claims to be a Christian, who is, now this is what I find interesting, notice Paul's list, sexually immoral, covetous, covetous in the sense that they're driven by wanting something else so badly they're willing to do whatever they have to do to get it. So they're covetous, idolater, and in the context is probably someone who went to the idol temples, you know, participate in the idol feasts and all of that. Or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. So all that to say this, Rick, it's a, it's a great question you ask, a tough one to wrestle through. But I would say what we as a church have done is this. We don't, it's not like we try to categorize sins, mortal, venial, more significant, less significant. But we are more inclined to make something public if it is uh, of such nature that it is bringing such shame to the name of Christ by us not saying something. 
In other words, word gets out in the community, you know, like, oh man, you know, Grace Bible Church the other day got up and actually gave a guy's name and announced that he's having an adulterous affair with what kind of church would do that, whatever. Well, we feel like that actually says something to the community that we don't take this lightly. If this guy claims to be a Christian and everybody knows he's, you know, every weekend shacking up with someone, we can't, we've got to make a statement that says that's not acceptable. That's not what a Christian should do or how a Christian should live. So, yes, in answer to your question, uh, I think that even Paul's list here sort of gives an indication that, you know, coming back to, if we find out someone has lied on their income tax, some, if somehow we found out about that, we would feel it necessary to exhort that brother. Like, brother, you, you can't do that. You know better as a Christian. You can't do that. I don't know that we'd ever go and make that like a Matthew 18, like, you know, make it public because it's not a public reproach to Christ. Therefore, I'm not sure a public announcement is needed. So that's, yes, yeah, so that's kind of how we try to wicker through that. Uh, can you uh, shed some light on predestination and free will? I've always kind of uh, struggled to grasp how those coexist sure. with each other. Sure. Yeah, welcome to the club. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, just suffice it to say this. Uh, I believe the Bible clearly teaches both divine election and genuine human volition. I mean, the first, one of the first subjects in the Bible is creation, and God made us in His image. And part of being made in the image of God is intellect, emotion, and volition. So we have genuine volition. Genuine, we're not robots. We're not machines. We have volition. Now, granted, I understand as sinners, our volition has been greatly tainted and, and you know, pushed toward the wrong direction. So we use our volition wrongly. But it still doesn't cancel out our volition. James even says, when he's talking about the tongue, you know, not to be slanderous toward those who are made in the image of God. And this is post-fall. So my point is, we're still in the image of God today. Unbelievers are still in the image of God. And part of the image of God is intellect, emotion, and volition. So I believe in genuine human volition, not pretend volition. I also believe in divine sovereignty. I believe Ephesians 1.4, chosen to be in Christ before he ever laid the foundation of the world. Uh, Acts 13.48, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed? Those who were appointed to eternal life. So I believe both completely, not half. I don't sort of believe in election, but I, I want to redefine it like, well, God looks forward in the future to see who's going to choose him, then he chooses that. No, I think that's destroying the doctrine of election. It's not the accurate doctrine of election. So I don't want to destroy it by sort of, you know, chipping away at it. But at the same time, I don't want to destroy genuine human volition and responsibility because if you just did a numerical comparison of the two topics, guess, guess which one is addressed more by God in the Bible than the other? Human volition is way more addressed. Calling to repentance all the way back in the Old Testament. Jonah goes around Nineveh, repent or you're going to be killed. And these are all pagans. These are not Jews who had a knowledge of the true God. These were just, yeah, heathen, Gentiles. Repent. And they did. The whole city repented. The king repented. That's genuine human volition. So I don't want to, I don't want to take my doctrine of election and lay it over genuine human volition and then sort of wink at volition and say, yeah, we have genuine volition. Wink, wink. We don't really, you know, because of election. We do. Now, your question, how do they mesh together? Only God knows that.
But, but because I can't figure it out, I don't want to destroy it. I don't want to destroy election. I don't want to destroy human volition and responsibility. So I'm content just to believe both wholeheartedly. And if that seems contradictory to some, so be it. But I see both in Scripture. And so I just believe both. So uh, whatever the passage is that I'm preaching or teaching, whatever it emphasizes, that's what I'll emphasize. I'll just, you know, it's, you know, Acts 2, Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. Men and brethren, they're convicted by his sermon. What shall we do? And you remember Peter's response as a good Calvinist? Do? You can't do anything. God does it all. That's not what he said. You know what you need to do? Repent. That's what you need to do. So I just, whatever's in the passage, that's what I try to be faithful to. And I'm willing to leave the tension there and not compromise either doctrine, just, just trying to make them fit in my own finite mind. Yeah. Sure. All right, so I have a fun one. Uh-huh. Is masturbation a sin, and how do you back that scripturally? Also, yeah. is it different? Because I've heard people claim it's different before marriage as, as opposed to after marriage. And how, where would you take someone with that? Sure, yeah. Uh, yeah, I would say this. I don't know of anyone who could honestly say, and I've had lots of conversations with people about this, I don't know anyone who could honestly say that when I do that, I am not thinking about anyone. There's always thought associated with it. It's not merely a physical thing, like scratching the back of your hand. So there is thought associated with it to stimulate your mind and stimulate your body. And so now you have stepped right into the violation of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, that if a man looks at a woman to lust after her, he's committed adultery with her already in his heart. So thought going down that path is prohibited by God. So again, theoretically, if someone could, could, could convince me, which you can't do, that it's, that it's, that it's non, there's nothing mental associated, there are no wrong thoughts associated with it, etc., then theoretically I could say, oh, it's, you know, but it's not the case. Everyone who, everyone I've ever talked to about this, when I push them, say, now, what were you thinking about? When you did? Is this just a mindless physical activity? No, it's not. There's always thought connected to it. So that would be the passage. Now, in relation to your second question about, well, is it different after you're married? Um, no, it's not different. Now, it's possible that you could be thinking about your spouse. In other words, someone has said to me once, well, I, you know, if I think about my spouse, is that acceptable? No, because in 1 Corinthians 7, the Holy Spirit says you don't deprive one another. So I'm sorry to be, be this blunt, but I'll just say it this way. You don't, when you're married or even when you're single, you have no right to have sex with yourself. So God gave us sexuality to enjoy in the context of our marriage with our spouse. And so when you are involved in masturbation, whether you're single or married, you're basically having sex with yourself and you are, you're thinking thoughts that are either, if you're single, totally unacceptable, even if you're married and thinking about your spouse, that are selfishly motivated, not other motivated. Renee, where was Renee at? So I have two questions related to women in the church. The first is in 1 Corinthians um, 
11, verse 13. Yes. It's talking about head coverings, and I always understood this to be cultural, but I was wondering what it said. It's for the angels in verse 13. Mm-hmm. No, it's actually verse 10. This is why an off wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Sure. And then the second one was in 1 Timothy 2, 15, and it talks about yet she will be saved through childbearing. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? Sure. And the will be, because that's a future tense. Right. I thought I was referring to Mary having Jesus, but right. this was written after he right. was born. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm glad we have only four minutes <laughs> to answer. First uh, Corinthians 11. Let me just uh, give you general framework and my take on it, and then you can wrestle with it from there. Um, First of all, the most important thing, in my opinion, about 1 Corinthians 11 is that Paul is not addressing women worshiping. He's not addressing women going to the grocery store. He's not, he is addressing very specifically, verse 5, every woman who is praying or prophesying with her head uncovered. Two specific concerns Paul has here, a woman praying or prophesying with her head uncovered. And in context, this is in the context of corporate worship gathering. So Christian groups that mean well by this, but say women should wear a head covering when they go out in the community and all that, that's not not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about when you go out into the community, when you go to the grocery. He's talking about when you come in to corporate worship gathering. And he is saying, in my, my opinion, that if you have an occasion where the church is gathered and you're going to have a woman either lead the congregation in prayer or share something from the word, she should wear a head covering to physically acknowledge her willing agreement with God's design of male leadership in the church. Because typically, it's going to be the men who share from the word and the men who pray. So if you have an occasion where a woman would step into a role that is typically one that the men do, she needs to have some kind of physical, visible symbol that says, I'm not trying to usurp anything here or trying to go against God's design. I am I'm in submission to the Lord and my spiritual leaders. And so, because I think that's what Paul is dealing with, And because of the reasons he gives, namely creation, as you mentioned, the angels, he does not give cultural reasons for this. So I don't believe this is cultural. But the reason most people do believe it's cultural is they don't start with the praying and prophesying issue. They just think it's talking about wearing a hat. So is it, do women need to wear a hat? Well, that's a cultural issue. That's not a biblical issue, but but in the context of corporate worship now, and so Paul gives some reasons why, Uh, Order of creation and angels. And the only thing I can say about what he's saying is that angels are present observing our worship. And so because who is the first group to have some from their group rebel? The angels rebelled against God's design, sided with Satan. So I think what Paul is saying there is that, listen, for the sake of an object lesson, even to the angels, the, of, of godly submission, uh, of godly obedience uh, uh, on behalf of a woman, she is being an object lesson herself or a testimony to the angels who are present in corporate worship when she does this this way. So that's, that's sort of my take on 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, it's definitely a minority view, so it probably is wrong, but you can kind of just try to study it out and see that's what I think is saying. So I think the, he brings in the angels to say, oh, by the way, this isn't cultural. 
This is about theological realities like creation, angels, observing worship, etc. Uh, your second question uh, is also kind of related, like you said, in 1 Timothy 2 about not permitting a woman to, if you want to paraphrase it, basically to be an elder. And then Paul says, nevertheless, she shall be saved from the bearing of children, da, 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 da. So what is Paul saying there? Again, it's just, if you go and read the commentaries, they're all over the place, which ought to instill within us a humility, whatever view we hold, because what it shows is a tough passage. So, you know, what, what, is, what is being said there? Here's, again, my take on it. I could be wrong, uh, but you just got to wrestle with it, you know, uh, the passage. So Paul has just said God's design is for male eldership in the church, basically. I'm paraphrasing. And this is supported by, again, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So creation, fall, he uses theological realities, not cultural stuff. Now, it would be certainly understandable at this point to say, hold it, this sounds sort of chauvinistic, or it sounds like it's putting down women, or that they have, you know, why is this restricting? Why this restriction? And so I, I, I'm assuming that what Paul is doing is he's going to give an illustration of the fact that, hey, you know what? This is just life. This is the way God has designed things, that we have different roles. One role that men can have, now not all men can have or should have, is to be an elder. And not all men occupy that role, but some men do. Uh, what is a role that some women have? Not all women, obviously, but some women. They can be mothers. Men can't be mothers. They just can't. So... I think Paul brings this in as an illustration that this is just the way God has designed things. There are just certain roles, certain... Now, he's not saying that the only role for a man that's significant is to be an elder. That's certainly not true. Nor is he saying the only role that's significant for a woman is to be a mother. Uh, You've got to be consistent here and be parallel. But being an elder is a significant role. Being a, a mother is a significant role. So he's just giving another illustration of the fact that we each have our own roles, our own designated you know, lanes that God has put for us. And so he says she will be saved. What kind of salvation? Well, he's just talked about the woman being deceived, fell into transgression. Well, is that a stigma on a woman? Well, uh, she's given a unique role as a mother uh, if they continue. And then the commentators disagree on who's the they, the women or the children. It's tough. But even without trying to unscramble that, the point I think that Paul is, he's just sort of bringing back a balance to say, Here's God's design for male eldership. Now, if you recoil at that and say, hold it, that's, you know, why restrictions? Well, uh, here's the theological realities. And remember that also women have a unique opportunity that men don't have in motherhood. Uh, and so I just see him sort of bringing in another component to balance out his teaching. So, yeah. Okay. I think we are out of time. I am so glad. Because uh, I always sweat out these questions. What's going to be asked next? So uh, let's pray. We'll let you go. Father, thanks for uh, a great semester. As we're winding down here near the end, I pray especially for the students at this time of the year because I know that uh, this is crunch time with uh, papers and assignments, projects, final exams looming uh, and all of that coming to bear. So I pray for, for discipline good discipline for the students, that they would be disciplined with their time, their energies and their efforts, their schedules. Uh, I pray for uh, just special grace. We know that your grace is multifaceted, takes many forms, and uh, even the form of uh, assisting us in 
in the midst of overwhelming responsibilities. So I pray that for the students, that they would be able to finish well, uh, finish strong, and, uh, and as, as Danny prayed earlier, just that they could see that what they're doing is not merely homework, schoolwork, but it's uh, an opportunity to do, as Colossians 3 says, whatever we do, uh, as unto the Lord. So I pray that they, they would be able to do everything they're doing as unto you and finish well and be able to exhale and, and go toward the, the Christmas holidays uh, just with the satisfaction of giving their best to end the semester. So we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.